0: Have you ever wanted to take your technical skills and start a business? I think it's actually a fairly common desire among a lot of programmers. Because when you think about it, we have a lot of skills that lend themselves to building businesses. We like to build things. We're experienced in going from idea to actual working thing. We have a love of solving problems. Puzzles, sure, but also especially Problems that make a real difference to people, that delight people when we finally solved what's been bugging them. And we know as well as any sector, how do you create a repeatable system that delivers something valuable over and over and scales up? We've got a lot of skills that lend themselves to businesses. But there's one area I think traditionally we're fairly lacking as programmers, and that's the sales and marketing side. Uh, I think Kevin Costner has something to answer for here. We were told, if you build it, they will come. But anyone who's tried knows that's simply not the case. No matter how great a product you build, you've still got to build the bridge from your product to the outside world and back. If you just build it, they won't come. They won't even hear you. So if you want to go from working the feature factory to captaining your own ship, you've got to learn the other side. And that's this week's topic coming from a very much a technical mindset, we're going to talk about how you bridge that gap to the outside world. And my guest for this has very good form. I'm joined by Michael Dragalis. He's already sold one technical business and he's now embarking on his next and he's got a novel idea for it. Instead of rolling the dice once, he's going to attempt to start four tech businesses in the next four quarters and publish every step of the journey, put himself under the spotlight and show people how it goes. Given that he's keen to bear all, and this is a question that will face quite a few of us in our careers, I thought I'd bring him in to discuss the practical steps of turning an idea into a solution people actually want. The external stuff of sales and marketing and price discovery and all that, and also that more difficult sometimes the inner game of understanding and empathizing with your customers making good decisions but not making decisions so perfect that you paralyze yourself and never do anything not making a decision and then second guessing yourself next week all that external and internal game stuff that's just outside the realm of software so a meaty topic let's get stuck in I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Michael Dragalis. Joining me today is Michael Dragalis. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me, doing great. Good, you're on an exciting adventure
1: these days. I am. I am. Uh, I've recently left Confluent, and I'm kind of embarking on a journey just to see um, what I can do as a, an entrepreneurial software enge- engineer. What can I build? What am I good at? What am I not good at? And uh, it, it's been an exciting journey so far. About three weeks in.
0: So we're going to get into this, but if we're going to talk about tech people giving up their day job to go and start their own business, we should really note that you have past form on this. This is not your first rodeo, as they say over there, right? So yeah, give us your backstory, because you've sold a business before.
1: Yeah, my, my story starts maybe um, 10, 11 years ago. I left um, college as a software engineer. And uh, at the time, open source was, was really culturally big. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to have some ownership in something. And so I had started an open source company. Um, or rather, I had started an open source project. And, and that was kind of moderately successful. I ended up founding a business on top of that. Um, which I eventually sold to Confluent, and I spent um, the last you know five years at Confluent. So now, now that I've exited Confluent, I'm pretty you know, keen to try it again and sort of see, um, you know, how much of that was skill and how much of that is luck, and try to tilt as much of that to the the skill bucket as I can.
0: Yeah, but presumably, when you sold that company, you made enough money to take a risk, not so much money that you decided to never work again in your life, right? So you, you've got a bit of a safety net going into this, I guess. But the thing I find interesting is with that comfort, you you then moved to Confluent for like five years. You didn't say, oh, I'm going to immediately jump out and do thing number two. What what was behind that decision? Why why did you stay there for five years? And then what was the trigger that actually made you say, I want to roll the dice one more time?
1: That, that was the plan, actually. As, when I joined, I was like you know okay I'll spend 2 years at Confluent and then I I'm I'm a flight risk I'm going to go do the next thing I'm going to relax and none of that came into fruition I I joined and it, it ended up being a pleasant experience I I learned a lot I think it was a good place for me to like watch what happens after you get out of like day 1 and day 2 of a company and sort of watch how you go from 200 people to you know several thousand people and so I I learned a lot through that experience uh it ended up also being kind of a good um place for me to be at a transition phase in life i had two children during that time and uh it helps to kind of have a less work chaos than you would doing an early stage company and so uh it, it ended up being sort of the right set of people to be around the right set of lessons to learn uh and now you know five, five years later uh I, I i never lost that itch but it just ended up being kind of like the right uh alignment of stars to try it again now why
0: what was the trigger
1: I think. Um, you know, as, as Confluent got kind of bigger, I, I sort of learned a little bit about myself. Like, what are the things that I liked and what are the things that I, I didn't like? You know, um, I, I realized that I really prioritize working in a small setting, shipping fast, making quick decisions. Large companies can do incredible things that small companies can never do. But I realized kind of what was the thing that I wanted at the end of the day. I really wanted to try try something with with quick quick iteration, quick decision making. Um, and that's kind of what led me you know back to just trying this on my own. It's sort of like kind of tip, yeah. tip the balance point of, of uh, um, you know benefit and and um, benefit and cost.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of programmers can understand that wanting to get back to just building and shipping software quickly and working on your own thing and the freedom of it. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. But you, another thing I find unusual is you jump ship, and you you didn't have a specific idea in mind. You had what some will say is a crazy plan for what you were going to do as soon as you left. And I'm going to let you outline what your plan is for the first year.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of tell it through a quick story. Basically, my plan while I was at Confluent was to spend my time deciding what's, what's going to be the next company that I build. I would probably do a venture back company like I had attempted to do before and um, try to take it further than I did the last time. And so I spent years being like, oh, all right, what's what's the problem that I'm going to solve? What's What's the billion-dollar market? And I, I got pretty far down several different paths, and as I got co- closer and closer to doing it, I sort of realized I felt a state of anxiety about choosing one problem and saying I'm going to try to take the next ten years to go and, and crush it and you know just spend my life on this. Something about that just didn't sit well with me, and I, I you know actually I still don't know why, but I I sort of respected that and I paused and I said all right that's that's not going to be the plan. I'm going to try something else, and I sort of concocted something. Rather different. Instead of doing one big company, uh, I formulated the plan of uh, you know what would it be like to do many little companies, and so I I sort of put together something that I call um, four startups in four quarters, which is basically what it sounds like. You know, for the next year, each quarter I'm going to attempt to launch a little company, a little startup with its own product, and to see if I can make that succeed. And I, I think this this ended up sort of feeling more balanced to me. It gave me the freedom. To try different products, to try different domains, to not feel bad about throwing things out that that weren't working, and mm. um, so far you know its it's been a pretty successful framework for me it's It's not easy, but I think it 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 gives me a bit better um you know internal alignment it feels like I'm doing the right thing with myself at this time
0: okay uh, i mean that's it's such a thing to go out on your own that you have to feel somewhere deep inside that you're doing the right thing, right? And it's you're well suited for it. I know that if I did that with the best will in the world, I'd probably spend the first three months trying to decide what problem to solve in those three months. How do you how do you say, well, maybe this isn't the billion dollar company, but this is good enough for now? How do you how do you crystallise a problem?
1: So I, I think that's the key. Is I I don't want the billion dollar company. I actually be much happier making less money, but doing something that I'm happy with and saying that this is enough. And it's pretty countercultural to all of Silicon Valley to say I'm I'm actually going to aim lower. But that's that's <laughs> what my goal is right now. Um, I so I think I think that's part of it. And then I think the other part of it is saying, you know, I I've signed up in a public commitment. I've gone on LinkedIn. I've gone on Twitter. I've told all my friends and my family I'm going to ship something in 90 days. Uh, it's it's the 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 Sunzu Death Ground strategy. You know, I, I've taken my ships and I've burned them. I put my back to the 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 sea or whatever. Um, I I don't want to look bad if I ended up not shipping in ninety days. I, I feel it's important to try to you know honor that commitment, uh, even if it's there's no serious consequences to me backing out of it. I I think it's internally important, so um, it, it's a motivator for me to just pick a problem that I think is interesting admit that I actually don't know the market size and just say, I'm going to try my best in 90 days and it's going to be what it's going to be. Maybe there's going to be some traction, maybe there's not, but it gives me the license to attempt, fail possibly, and move on or succeed and just see what's there and kind of open the box and find out what's inside.
0: Okay. Well you best tell us what your first idea is and then we can chew through that. So what's, what's business number one? <laughs> <laughs> I've I've got like yeah a list of maybe
1: 10 ideas some of them are more baked than others but I thought okay this is going to be a pretty challenging year what should I do I want to explore all kinds of different domains I might as well you know not delude myself and make it harder than it already is so I thought I'd start with what I know my entire career has been in data infrastructure why don't I do something that's adjacent to that so I've spent many years working in um, event streaming systems real-time systems and I've sort of noticed that um just sort of getting these systems running from scratch is pretty hard. What I've observed is something that I call the $10,000 demo problem, which is that anytime anyone wants to build any kind of a real-time demo, it, it easily costs $10,000 in people's time. And the the the, um, the cost is actually not configuring your software. It's injecting the right data into your system to elicit the behavior you want. You need data that looks realistic, that is relationally joined across many data sets. You need it produced into your system at an appropriate cadence. And there was just nothing else out there that, that did this. I've seen teams construct these over and over. And internally, what I notice is that every company ends up building a little data simulation tool to try to power their system. And they do it for like every project, every conference that comes up. All right, let's build the demo. It just gets done from scratch over and over. And so that's the problem that I want to solve in my first quarter. I'm building a product that I call Shadow Traffic to basically solve this. It's a, 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 um, a container that you can download. It has a declarative API to say, I want my data to look like this it should be produced at this distribution rate. It has relationships that join in this way. And so it it sort of solves that problem of figuring out how do I go from nothing to actually building a a system that's based on uh, event data in a pretty quick way.
0: Okay. I think we can all understand that problem and the, the need to solve it. But do you so you say you're not aiming for the big billion dollar problem, you're not doing a lot of market research up front. What what made you say, okay, of my 10, this is the first one to tackle? Was it like the burning personal need or the feeling that it might be the one that captures people's imagination? Or yeah, I I would
1: be lying if I said that I knew. It's kind of just intuition based on, you know, my years of experience. I think a lot of this is just an admission to not knowing. Like I've realized, um, even the best people in business are wrong a lot of the time. but the way that you end up being right is you you rapidly experiment and you learn. you just say I, I don't know, but how can I figure out the answer as fast as possible? Um, 90 days while is a decent chunk of time, you know it's certainly a lot lot less time than you know two or three or four years you can spend trying to build a, a startup all on its own. And so you know I think a lot of the philosophy that I'm trying to take is to figure out like how can I take, Um, anything that I want to do and turn it into as rapid of an experiment as possible and and not feel bad about the results. If it doesn't work out, that's fine. I've got, you know, 15 other things stored up in the queue. I'm ready to try again. And eventually one of them is going to be a winner.
0: (laughs) Okay. If you throw enough darts, you'll hit the dartboard.
1: Yeah, essentially. One of my friends, Stanislav said, uh, I expect failure in the short term, um, but I expect success in the long term because I'm just not going to stop. And I, I think that's exactly the right mindset.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, something nice to hold on to when the storms are going. Yeah. Idea. Yeah. Okay. So how do you break down 90 days? Cause you've got a lot to do. You've got a certain amount of marketing, some business, a lot of, uh, software to write and it's just you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just me as, as a,
1: you know, a solo entrepreneur. Um, I, I don't really have the benefit of having done a full quarter of this to say what works yet, but I would say so far, the key has been to have a high degree of automation. And I, I don't necessarily mean that in the software sense, though that is certainly a factor. Um, and you can think about it this way. You know, Every day that I wake up, I have to make a bunch of different decisions. And the less decisions that I have to make with effort, the better. And so um, what are those decisions? Do I work on this or do I work on that? Do I work on the riskier thing or the safer thing? Do I do marketing today or do I do product work today? I've kind of automated my routine enough to make very few of those decisions, or at least when I make those decisions, the decision is automatic. It doesn't take any energy from me. And so um, I've got myself in a cadence where the first three days of the month, I'm working on marketing. Every other day, I'm working on product. I've kind of automated the marketing from that sense. My marketing may or may not be good during the month, but I've sort of committed to you know this is what I'm doing. Similarly with planning, as I build the product, I've got a roadmap. I'm dynamically deciding what's in and out of scope, but I sort of have a policy of like, this is the minimum bar I need to hit to ship. Everything else can wait. And um, it's it's required the discipline to keep coming back to that and sort of say, um, I'm not going to look at every decision and spend five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour deciding what to do. I'm just going to go based on what's on the plan. And it's going to turn out the way it is. I can always adjust my policy later, but this is what I'm doing right now. And so far, that's been the key to staying sane. I'm, I'm not working heroic hours. I'm working 40 hours a week. I have a family, but it's been having that disciplined plan and automation in place that's let me
0: you know, be effective so far. Okay, so you're treating yourself like an employee, almost, of some higher plan.
1: Yeah, I, I think you kind of have to. You know, the um, when I was younger, I could succeed by basically brute forcing any problem. I could, so I could you know, take as long yeah. as I want. I can try all the options. I can kind of come in and out of whether I'm working on it. Right now, I, I don't have that much time, and so um, it really, really depends on having a plan to execute. And there's something comforting about that too. Like in the past, I may have failed at something, and I'll, I'll, I'll feel bad. And you know, this time around, I, I have a real plan, and the plan may fail, and that's going to feel kind of crappy. But at least I had a you know well reasoned plan, and, and that actually comforting all on its own i i think that's probably uh um
0: like you said something to lean on as the, as the storms rolling yeah that kind of hints at something like larger is there anything from your previous business that you regret doing you're like if i ever do this again i'm gonna do i'm not gonna do that i'm gonna do this i, I think we could spend the next six hours talking
1: about things like that <laughs> um yeah what, what are the big things that come to mind i mean certainly i i committed the biggest error you can make as a first-time entrepreneur, which is having no marketing and no go-to-market plan, believing that if you build a product, the customers are just going to come if it's good enough. And unfortunately, to say it is not true, you can build the greatest product in the world. The greatest product does not always win. It's the, the product that has the most sensible story, has the best go-to-market, has the best usability. There are so many other things besides building the best set of features that makes products succeed... And so I, I didn't do any of that in my first company. We 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 just thought we'd just build a product, and we'd tell a couple people about it, and then it would go viral from there. And I, I think that's kind of the you know the the uh, the cardinal sin that, that every technical founder makes because people like us. I mean, I mean, you've you've done a company before. You know what it's like. You you have a, a great engineering idea, and you kind of expect the rest of it to take care of itself because that's not really part of your your initial skill set and so it's easy to kind of punt that problem up the road
0: yeah yeah it's the same you can see exactly the same structure of problem from the like stereotypical other side of the fence where someone has a great idea and a great business plan and they think actually building it will be trivial i'll get some i'll get yeah. some students to do it in a weekend or something yeah and then i'll be the head of the new facebook like, so, yeah no, <laughs> you won't dude
1: <laughs> so yeah and i i, I think that's kind of like um to me, the best possible outcome of this is developing a balanced skill set where you fall into neither of those traps. You're able to, to, to build the ideas that you want, but you also have a balanced perspective where you, you, you know all the other challenges to getting your product to market. And the things that you don't have to do, you actually don't have to implement every feature. Um, you should spend more of your time coming up with a better story, better pricing model, a better way to connect with your customers. And I, I think the people who have those skills, I, I just admire them so much because they have such stability in what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's there's something if only it were easier to figure out the path, it would be wonderful if we could just as developers spend most of our time solving problems in a way that the market responded to so we would make enough money to carry on solving problems that interested us, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um and I'm going to I wonder if the book I'm thinking of is up on my bookshelf. No, it's not. Oh, yes it is. Hang on. Um God, what's his name? Austin, Austin Cleon. Austin Cleon, who wrote um, "Steal Like an Artist. Right. Um He, one of his ideas, and I think his second book, was if you want to actually be an artist, then you're just going to have to accept the fact that you're going to spend half of your time doing art and half of the time marketing your art, talking about it, right? Reaching out, making it happen in the world as well as living in your cave, Do you think that holds true for tech as well? Like if you want to spend half your time, if you want to be a programmer, an entrepreneurial programmer, you're going to have to spend half your time putting the code away and talking to people.
1: I'm not sure what the right balance is, but I think the idea is, right, you're going to go through different phases where it it makes sense to kind of get heads down and build once you have a good idea of what you're doing. And at other times, you spend a lot of your time just talking to people. I think the trick is to develop the... Kind of the sensory feedback of when you're out of balance. Like last week, I realized I haven't talked to potential customers in a while. This is a problem. I have to get on it. But yeah, I, I think, um, I think it's absolutely crucial almost no matter what you're doing to just make sure that you're, you're out there and you're talking to people. Otherwise, you're going to commit the error of building something that, that nobody wants. And I think it's something that people don't want to hear when they're just getting into a, a career of making things because I mean, often it ends up being people who are, um, I, I'm a bit more like insular. I'd rather just sort of like have a quiet setting to work on my thing, and I, I didn't think that was supposed to be part of the job. But if you sort of want to take, you know, charge of your own product and say, "and I, this this is the thing I want to build, I want to get it out into the world," it's just an essential part of it. It's it's a it's an area of skill that has to be developed, and it can't be ignored.
0: Okay, so how do you develop it? Give me some guidance as a geek.
1: <laughs> uh, tr- trial and error. I mean, it, it's it's pretty painful at first. And I, I can't say that I'm you know, still great at it, but I, I kind of rewind what's in my mind. I was, you know, uh, could be only described as a software engineer in maybe 2014, or even 2015. I had an idea, and I, just, I really wanted to get it out there. And so I, I think a lot of the skill just comes from trial and error and storytelling. You have to be able to hold a conversation with people and, and see if they're interested, if, if you can at least do that you know, it's sort of a warning sign about whether you're really onto something big or not. And so I think getting yourself out there and exposed with enough volume of those conversations is important just to get comfortable with it. And then I think the other part of it is to get more skilled in doing it in a variety of mediums. So there's kind of the elevator pitch. Can you tell people in 60 seconds about what you're doing? Can you not use the terms that you know about that they don't know about? That's a whole other thing. Can you design a website that packages up your pitch so that you don't have to rely on doing it over and over so that you can basically you know, pitch in your sleep? Um, can you put together the pitch deck for people who want to see in the room walk me through the five-minute ultra-polished presentation? And you yeah. learn skills there. The, the secret to giving a really good pitch is to anticipate the next question that people have in their minds and to answer those questions one in a row. And it makes people feel good because um, you, you sort of feel like you're connected with that person like you're speaking the same language and so uh, I, I think if I was going to wrap up all this it's, it's sort of volume just doing a lot of it and then also doing it across all different kinds of situations there's a lot more than what I described but I think those are kind of the basics.
0: Yeah yeah it's painful though when you're probably naturally an introvert right
1: yeah I certainly people I mean, in our industry it, tend that way yeah, I mean, any kind of new skill is painful to develop. It's probably more so when it sort of moves against your inclinations and is your personality. Um, but I, I think the more you succeed with it, you sort of realize what's what's the reward out there. The reward is you take full charge of your own creative vision. It's not that you just wrote the code. You now control how do we talk about it, how do we think about it, how do you price it. To me, that that's kind of the ultimate power So just being in control of what's what's the essence of what you're building. It's, it's not necessarily the case that you need to take this career path and to do what I'm doing, which is say, uh, you're going to do a small company to do it all. You can have that kind of power at a larger company where you, you've you got the vision for how do you want it to look? How do you want it to feel? I feel like those are the people who are, to me, the most exciting to work with. They just sort of are able to pierce through every layer of building the product from the sales, to the marketing, the engineering, and you have these really rich discussions with them. And I feel... I feel those produce the best products in the end. If you can work with people who who have that ability.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're rare, but they're fun to work with when you meet them. So how do you take me through that with, um, what's the name of the product again? Is that, I know it's solving the $10,000 demo problem. What are we calling it? Yeah. Shadow traffic. And actually
1: what you just said is, is a great example. I've sort of wrapped up, you know, what I'm working on in a story. You remember the story, you remember the problem. And that's mostly what matters. I mean, if, if you have the problem, you're eventually going to come back to me and it doesn't really matter what the name of the product is, but the the problem was memorable. And I think that, that's actually right there is a good example of, um, you know, uh, wrapping things up in that particular way.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you've uh, you've ninjured me somehow. <laughs> you've done some judo, Jedi mind trick. That's what I'm clawing at. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, the product
1: name is, is Shadow Traffic. I tried to come up with something that was sort of a, a visual representation of what what I'm trying to do, which is to help people take what looks like realistic data and and apply it to their own you know safe settings, staging environments, testing that kind of thing.
0: Okay, so I've faced this problem before when I'm like trying to start something up, which is there's the chicken and egg problem, right? You you want you can't sell the thing to people until you've built it, but you can't really build it until you've got someone to sell it to. Because you need that kind of market feedback. And I've tried what you've suggested, which is building a website which kind of makes it look real, but it's always kind of hollow unless you've got a product. How are you clawing your way between that left leg, right leg, chicken and egg evolution thing to actually get to I assume you're trying to get the first customer. I assume yep. that's goal yep. A, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the um the key to it is to figure out what what is the what is the essence of what you're building? What's the most important part? It does feel hollow when when you're really good at products like like you are, and you can you can envision, all right, these, these 10 or these 15 things, and when they all come together, something great happens. And that's true in your head. But the trick is to sort of unwind it and say, all right, what's what's the one or the two things that are really, really important and find a way to put that on display? Um, for me with shadow traffic, the key is the the declarative API. I've come up with an API that is shaped like your data. And so the, the overhead of interacting with shadow traffic is actually really small. You take your data, you copy it, you paste it, and then you change some little values in the end. It actually ends up being very similar to what your data looks like. And so that, that's, that's the key to it. And so I tried to make a landing page that really emphasizes that, that sort of shows, shows that on full display. And to me, I, I kind of have to take a little bit of a, a leap of faith and say, okay, that, that one unique feature is what's going to get people excited and it's going to allow me to go build the next 10 or 15 features on top of that, that I think are also important. Um, And so I I try to stay motivated by figuring out, yeah, what's, what's, what's the new thing that's happening here that nobody else has and just focus on that.
0: Mm. A key to this is empathy, right? You've got, you've got to imagine the world from your customer's point of view and there's no way around that. Exactly. That's right. Do you worry that, um, like, Desi- you're doing design by wishful thinking, actually. You're imagining how it would look and then planning to implement that. Do you worry that you're going to make a public promise that the API will look like this and then two weeks in find out that actually that's really hard and you can't deliver it?
1: Yeah, not so much. I, I think this comes down to the the, the build in public philosophy. So there's, there's two ways you can build products. You can do the traditional way, which is to say, I have an idea. I'm not going to tell anybody about it because I'm very worried people are going to steal it. I don't want to make any public commitments. Otherwise, people will, will you know come and, and be mad at me. And then you spend six months or a year or two years building it. And then hopefully, that's the thing that customers want. More times than not, that takes way more risk than the rewards you get. The risk is it's actually not the thing that customers want. People wouldn't have been mad if you put mock-ups in front of them in the first place. And it just ends up being harder. The diametric opposite of this is build in public, which is to say... Nope, I'm not worried. Anybody's going to steal my idea. Maybe somebody does, but like I've got a bunch of other ideas in the queue. That's fine. And you just talk about it incessantly. You tell people, what this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Give me feedback. And so um, I'm three weeks into my first quarter of building four startups in four quarters right now. And what have I done? I built a landing page and I built a prototype of the first product. I've actually already gone out there over the last week and asked for feedback from as many people as I can, showing my basic sketch of the API. And what did it cost me? I got tons of feedback. I spent a week sketching that API. I got some feedback that I need to change this, this, and this. I'm going to go do that. And um, I'm certainly not going to go try to sell anything fake that like I, I don't believe that I can do or that I haven't done yet. But I am going to constantly try to bridge that gap and say, this is what's in my head. What do you think? And then get that feedback and sort of close close the, the interface to the product over time. What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? and i feel like this this is actually way more balanced i'm just i'm no longer worried that anybody's going to steal my ideas people either think my ideas are dumb which are fine or they've got their own ideas which they're actually much more um motivated to, to go do and um yeah this has kind of been better for me in the long run i think
0: you sound like you're actually enjoying marketing <laughs> maybe
1: i mean it's I, I, if i look at kind of my overall skill set it's the the weakest thing but i do think it is the It's the gatekeeper to succeeding. You kind of have to try really hard at the thing that you know you maybe suck at. But if you can get good at it, it's the key that's going to unlock everything for you. So, yeah, I'm I'm leaning into it. I don't think I'm very good at it right now. But uh, I I completely believe that if I can build traction with marketing, it's uh, a key ingredient to success.
0: Yeah. Something I realized years ago was that to make a successful business, you're best... (laughs) Sometimes you think naive programmer, you think the way to build a successful business is have have a fantastic like product right or a fantastic idea. actually, if you can just it's more like building a table if you've got four reasonably stable legs, you can build a table, but you need all of those legs right? so you need the product, you need the marketing story, you need a pricing structure, you need you can't miss out any pieces, but they don't have to be absolutely the best in the world.
1: That's totally right. And I think the other way that's comforting for people like you and me to look at it is it's all building. You know, we sort of think of engineering as the building. I write the code, I compile it. I've got that feedback loop. I'm making something. But marketing and sales are actually making things too. Just like to give you a quick example with marketing, I built the website, I've built the funnel, I've, I've built the messaging. It's all being designed very carefully. It's not like I'm sitting in a room throwing darts and saying, ah, I wonder what kind of like, you know, uh, 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 You know, business marketing words I can use, synergy and stuff. I'm, I'm actually selecting words <laughs> out of a thesaurus that I think are really good. It's very, very reasoned and, and, and detailed. And it's the same with with sales. How do you construct a pitch that's going to lead people through that cycle of, I wonder about X, the answer is Y, I wonder about A, the answer is B? Um, it, it's building all the way through. And I think if you can think of it that way, you can have a lot more fun because every day I wake up and I build something, no matter what the domain happens to be.
0: That's a nice way of thinking about it for those of us who are an engineering persuasion, fundamentally. Yeah. 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 Do you, um, it sounds like you've done a fair bit to de risk this process. And one of the things you seem to be doing in de risking it is by having this four startups in four quarters thing you're probably building an audience which will carry through even to if the first three ideas fail, you're carrying in a natural audience across to the fourth one. Is that a happy coincidence or a deliberate plan?
1: Yeah, that's, that's deliberate. And I think it's something if you look around, you know, all your favorite people who are successful in business have built audiences for themselves. I'm not trying to do it in a greedy way where I'm like courting attention at all costs. I'm trying to make it win-win where the win for me is I have an audience, but the win for anyone who follows me is you'll get a transparent log of how am I running my businesses? You get to look at my successes and failures and learn from me. And I think that's absolutely crucial. I mean, just, I like to think about um, building an audience and making products succeed as communicating with a graph. Just picture a graph in your mind. There's all these nodes that connect. If you want to take a product to market, you have to go to each of those nodes and say, hey, do you like my product or do you want to buy it? The more tightly connected those nodes are, the faster it is. If you can just go to one big node, which is like your personal network, boom, you're you're able to move pretty fast. But if you're you're loosely connected to all these people, how much longer is it going to take to go to every person and introduce your product, convince them you have the problem, see if they're willing to try it? It just takes significantly longer. And so, yeah, I, I think there's real skill in this idea of audience building, and particularly for the people who can make it, you know, win-win, and not not just sort of a one-way everyone listen to my ideas, but to sort of build, build a little bit of a community around what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I would find your approach very scary, but I can certainly see the logic to it. Like, why, why do you think it would be scary for you? Um, so I know some people who are deeply motivated by public commitments, Right. Um, I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine who anytime he wants to do anything first thing he does is declare it to the world that he's going to do it that works for him it really doesn't work for me I find that it just either I succeed or I fail um, as I was going to either way but if I promised it and I fail it just hurts And all all of my motivation is intrinsic the things I want to do it comes from just this burning need to do it yeah yeah, um, I, think, I think there's a lot of power. Just in. just adds a pressure I don't need. Oh.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of power in having lived enough years and, and just having enough experience where you sort of know what you need to succeed. The, the route I'm taking of public commitment doesn't work for you. Totally fine. If you know it works for you, that's great. You need to spend zero extra time figuring out how to motivate yourself. And I think that that's really important because someday the pressure is going to be on the line and you want to be able to select the tools that are best going to equip you to, to get to the finish line. And I, I think, yeah, the more you know about yourself in advance, the more likely you are to succeed.
0: Yeah. One of the best things I ever learned about management was that there's no secret to motivating people because every person has a different way of being motivated. I, I always remember I, I worked with this guy who, um, he, in his spare time, he was uh, training for the Olympics and he wasn't doing that well in the day job. Right. Um, And we were trying everything to try and get because we knew he had talent, but it wasn't really working out. And eventually one day I realized that, I mean, this is I'm going to sound like I'm manipulating people psychologically. I just I figured out what made him tick. Any any work he would do, I'd say, that's great. But I need you to basically I need you to give me five more. Drop and give me five more. You've done a good job, but you need to push it harder. And that was exactly what motivated him. Right. He was the kind of person who needed a coach that said, run an extra mile. And then he did his best work. It's like, that's not how I motivate myself. But figuring out the different ways people motivate themselves is like, yeah. And then you realize you can apply that same rule to yourself and suddenly you can unlock something in yourself.
1: It's funny you bring that up. I just finished a book called The Talent Code that talks about kind of why, why are people good at different things and what's the process to getting there? And there was an entire set of chapters about coaching. And it was exactly what you said. The best coaches in the world you imagine these people in the movies who are like giving motivational speeches in the locker room. Uh, in this author's view, it's mostly not at all like that in the real world with the most successful teams. The, the best coaches are the ones who are adapting to every player and giving different kinds of feedback, using different kinds of motivation. And more often than not, it, it's a quieter thing. It's sort of like, hey, well, what do you need? How how can I communicate with you in a way that makes sense? And it's usually not by, by barking at someone. It's sort of by figuring out. In, in that case... I need you to push a little bit further. In other cases, you need to be a little bit gentler and say, Hey, you don't have to put so much pressure on yourself. Um, and I think, yeah, this is the hard part about business. There's not really coaches. I mean, there's executive coaches out there. I'm I'm a little skeptical of them, but a lot of this (laughs) is trying to find your own way through a very, almost every time you've got a unique set of problems. And this is what makes it so fun. You wake up every day in a business, you've got a set of challenges that probably nobody else has exactly faced. And you need to figure mm. out how to, you know, wind your way through the maze. And so there's value in doing what you say, which is kind of learning to be your own coach, learning what makes you tick and the people who can figure that out. I think, I think those are the ones that are, are you know, most likely to succeed when pressure's on the line.
0: Yeah. You've reminded me of something else um, that I quite liked. Hocking back to your idea of building things, something else I quite liked about the kind of mid phase of building a business was you end up, as well as building these software systems, you realize there are hu- processes, processes, human interaction systems, ways of dealing with particular needs of customers. And you end up building soft systems with the same architectural principles you'd use for building software systems, right? And that's a lot of fun. Um, and I shall envy you when you get to that stage.
1: Yeah, I, I used to actually not like people management very much, and I still, I still wouldn't choose it for myself but um, a friend did kind of describe it to me in a way that made sense. He said, it's sort of like building an API. You have this many teams. Okay, what's the contract between them? What's, what's the purpose of these subsystems? And then what's the output of each subsystem? And how are they going to talk to each other? The more you can kind of define that in a way that you could write on paper and say, you could explain it to somebody in 60 seconds. That's mm. good people management. I, I really respect that. That actually changes my perspective from being, okay, I'm going to lord over people and say, you do this and you do this no it's it's a it's a design and the ones that that work really well they're the most consciously uh consciously crafted
0: yeah yeah it's um i find system architecture very satisfying and the fact that you can craft systems in completely different domains and it's still the same principles yeah that is satisfying let me take um another thread through this cuz i think You're planning to build four businesses, and here's another thing I would find very difficult. Okay, so let's say you're at the end of quarter two, your second business is an obvious failure. You drop that. End of quarter three, it's an obvious success. Okay, cool, then that's the one you run with. What if you get to the end of a quarter and it's kind of ticking along and it's doing okay, and maybe if you put another couple of years in, it will grow to something sustainable? How do you choose whether to put all your chips in or kill it.
1: I'll, I think I'll have to get back to you on that. I, I consider it a pretty, um, maybe fortunate outcome if I was at least able to get to that level of traction where I was like, maybe, you know, in three three months of effort, maybe there's something here. That That's actually a great outcome. I think the exercise I'm going to have to go through is to figure out, okay, how, how much faith do I have in that idea based on just my intuition of the situation? And then how small can i size my next bet it's not like i have to make each of these startup bets equally sized i have some pretty small ideas that are sort of consumer oriented and i can do rather quickly in maybe 6 weeks for example and so i'm kind of just going to have to go through that motion but i do think in the end um i'm either going to end up with a small set of multiple businesses that each do just a little bit of revenue and i'm kind of happy with or i'm going to find the one that um you know i i just I want to go all in on and, um, maybe still keep it small, but decide that this is my area of focus. But, um, I mean, this is probably the theme of this podcast. It's an admission of not knowing. I mean, I've got a bunch of things I like. I don't know what the market wants. I don't know what's going to work in that particular moment. I'm just going to try. And then whatever kind of feels right to me at the time, um, based on, on my intuition and my judgment, I'm going to go with it. And just knowing I, I don't have to stop at four and four, I can I can do five, six, and seven if none of those work out too, and um, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm eventually going to succeed at this. I'm pretty pretty determined.
0: How do you um? How do you deal with? I mean, okay, so you can uh, you can say, I don't know for sure, but I know today. But how do you deal with the fact that you you're sure it's the right thing to do for today, and next week you wake up and you're unsure, and the week after that you're you're sure again, and. Human emotions, they're very fickle. They flow in and out like the tide. And how do you take the average of how you're feeling?
1: One thing I was hoping to do a little bit better than the last time I did this was to to get off the roller coaster. Everybody talks about the startup roller coaster. One day, you feel incredible. You've got a new lead for customers. It seems like you're going to close a deal. The next day or the next week, something terrible has happened. A critical employee has quit. The, the customer lead fell through. It's just awful. I was sort of yeah. hoping I'd be able to get off that roller coaster this time. So far, I, I really haven't. I actually sort of feel the swings <laughs> in my emotion. But I, I do feel like a key to succeeding at this over time is to neutralize that and say, it's not It's not going to have no emotion. But I've seen enough situations where I, I have a customer lead. I know there's still probably like a 15% chance that I'm going to close them as a customer. If they end up walking away, that's 85% of the time. I just know that that's going to be the case. And so um you know i I think it's going to be a combination of just doing this enough to get let the volume kind of um stabilize me and then the other is it's just sort of like a mantra that i have is like just just ride the road in front of you like there's a lot of miles up the road that i still have to kind of go through i'm just focused on today and I, i think it's the only sane way to deal with it i'm selectively blocking out the long term and saying i've got this situation that i need to do if i do it really well that's great. And if I do it really well tomorrow, that's great. And if I have a month or two months or three months where every day I just do great at what I'm doing, I'm going to have better long term results because of that. Um, mm-hmm. Big long term successes are just lots of little short term successes chained together. And so um, yeah, every day, I, I feel a little bit overwhelmed. I just say to myself, just ride the road in front of you. The marketing thing that's not working well, I'll deal with that next week. The, the customer email that I need to respond to, another day. Right now, I need to solve this problem of of this bug in the software. And just kind of having that that selective vision, I would say.
0: Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me, again, it's like something we're very used to as programmers, which is some days as a programmer, you feel like a genius. And some days you feel like a moron and you just keep writing the software until it works, right? You keep plugging away yeah. at it.
1: Yeah. I, I think some of that is overcoming beliefs that are not true. I mean, like why... Why do you feel like a moron on some days? Well, maybe you did a typo that like is incredibly <laughs> obvious when you wake up the next morning. Um but it's some it's some part of your subconscious you kind of believe, "Hey, at my level of seniority, I should never do that." When clearly that's not the case. Everybody does that. And so some of this is defeating those subconscious beliefs that just frankly aren't true. Um unfortunately I I think it's a bit like pulling dandelions in a garden where you pull them out one day and more show up the next. But the more you kind of till the till the weeds back the you know the clear of a mind that you can have
0: yeah in a way you're talking about depressuring things for yourself mentally and that makes me wonder if someone came along with a vc fund and said michael i think you're a genius here's a million dollars now that comes with the main string that it's higher pressure would you take it
1: no, definitely not. And I, I think it comes back to knowing what what are your goals for yourself. So for me, I, I don't want to have that external commitment, even if the the reward may be higher. Um, yeah, I, I'm just can't say that I'm all that interested in it. I'm actually not sure at this stage the, the kind of person that I am whether the pressure would really be higher. Like I, I've managed to put a fair amount of pressure on myself <laughs> to succeed with the the public commitment thing. Um, yeah. But I think yeah, it, it's it's kind of like knowing what your goals are and what you respond to. So in this moment. My goals are to run a small lifestyle business. And the, the pressure that I work well with is to have public commitments. And so, um, you know, I use the word depressure, but I think it's sort of like, how do you set yourself up in the right situation with the right motivation? And when you kind of get that into balance between the right... I'm working on something fun that I love, and I'm also properly motivated by it. That's this sweet spot where, you know, it's allowing me to sit down for eight hours a day during the week and just totally focus on what I'm doing. And, and not second-guess it for the most part.
0: Mm. Yeah, okay. So not avoiding pressure, but aligning it to what suits you. I can see that. This also plays into, I mean, talking about pressures and motivations, let's talk about your your support system here. Specifically, how does your wife feel about this? You've just quit <laughs> your job when you've got two small children. <laughs> And as yeah. far as she can tell, you're in the shed noodling on marketing plans.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think these things are a, a household effort. So when I was doing my first company, I hadn't yet met my wife. But it was kind of fortunate in that I got to spend a whole bunch of time when I was younger, just, as I said, brute forcing the problem. I had as much time as I really needed. And at the time when I met my wife, I was sort of at the end of my my company. She had met me as someone who was like clearly... An entrepreneur, like this this is what I want to do with myself. This is what I love. I get up and I try to make things and show them to people and see if I can make funny. And so when I went to work at Confluent, she kind of understood that like that was gonna be a phase of life for me and that I was eventually gonna get back to it. And so mm-hmm. um I, I think you really do have to have the people in your life who are gonna root you on with this. I mean, I I talk about um, you know, waking up and being focused, but I, I do have many moments of self-doubt. And I think without the people around me who are gonna can help get me back up, you know, even even companies that are composed of one person, they're not—they're not really one people. They're—they're they're you, and then they're all the people who are rooting you on and keeping you going. Um, I'll give you an example from my my last company. We had just a catastrophic moment when our um, our initial product just didn't work. We were we're basically running out of money. We didn't know what we we're going to do. I was just like on the floor. I didn't know what to do. Our, our corporate lawyer of all people basically picked me back up and and helped talk me through how am I going to make this work? How am I going to turn this around? And it was a key moment for me. And I think without. Those kinds of people in your life, um, you, you just really need them to help you when you're down because it's going to happen. You're going to have the feelings where it's just like, I'm in the darkest possible place. And you need a, a mixture of your, your own drive to get out of it and then people to also help you along the way because it's, it's, it's never just you.
0: Yeah. If you hit that point again, are you going to stick with this commitment of publicly talking about that as well in your, um, in your marketing
1: I th- I think so. Um I've gotten enough messages where people have been thankful to kind of see a little bit what's on the inside of my head as I start this. And I'm trying to balance, you know, what's what's going well. Well, I'm I'm starting to h- build a little bit of traction in my product. What's going not well? I have moments of self-doubt all the time. And and people kind of like hearing that that balanced perspective. If I just sort of get to the end of this and I'm like I I cannot do it anymore, uh I can promise I'm not going to go out, you know, quietly. It, it, I'll, I'll talk <laughs> about it. because I, I just think there's so much value that can be created by walking people through your mindset of like, okay, I failed at this. Why? What are the consequences? What can I do now? And um, I hope not to have to do that, but and it'll be painful if I do. But um, yeah, I guess it's just kind of my way of maybe giving back to all the people who helped me. It's sort of a scalable mm-hmm. way to help other people to say, here's, here's my journey. Here's why I ended up. Make of it what you will. Maybe you can use some of this for yourself. Maybe not.
0: Yeah. It seems like a very non-Silicon Valley way to behave, though. Right? Where I'll you're just supposed to talk compliment. up your successes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with all the love in the world, Silicon Valley, I think sometimes the priorities are a little bit skewed. Let's say that.
1: Yeah. I mean, as an example of that, I notice kind of everything that's celebrated in our world Um, A lot of it is is fundraising. How much money did you raise? And this was certainly true before the bubble. I mean, so many companies raised just insane amounts of money. And and that was the thing that was celebrated, much less what product did you build and what traction did you get? And I I was just kind of sick of all that. I mean, people can do what they want, but what am I going to focus on myself? I I really want to build businesses that I know succeeded because of my own skill. That's the thing that I care about. And so I'm trying to build that culture around me, that set of people who, who, who values that kind of success.
0: Yeah. Do you hope, though, to reach the point where you're hiring people and this becomes a larger concern?
1: Maybe. I, I think at least for the next year, I'm pretty eager to try to just take a solo run at it and say, how can I take this automation thing to the, the highest possible level? How can I, as an individual, put my skills on display of building? marketing, selling, storytelling, writing. I'm kind of like the person who wants to do the decathlon. I want to do all the events. And (laughs) yeah, maybe I'm not going to have as big of a paycheck as I could if I was going to like found a a larger company. But at least for a year or two, I really want to do try to see if I can make all of my skills shine. I know I've got weak points, but um, in the worst case, this next year is going to be education for me. I'm paying for my tuition. I'm I'm failing at this and that, but I'm going to get better at it and the worst that's going to happen is i'm going to patch over those rough areas and i'm going to come out of it a lot stronger for my next thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and um and we get to watch along for the ride, which is interesting. I i have to make you promise to come back at the end of one of these experiments and do a retrospective.
1: Let's do it. I'll I'll give you the whole thing. You know, if people want to follow <laughs> along, i'm writing um, you know, once a week on a Substack. I just write a little short column. What did i do this week? What worked well? What didn't? But yeah I, I think it would be a lot of fun to come and give the maybe the the verbal full length overview of, of what happens i have already kind of got you know a bit of a bit of a story so far about you know with shadow traffic How has how build in public helped me how is my marketing working and not working i i think it would be really fun to to kind of um yeah unpack all of it all after after twelve weeks
0: yeah especially seeing that from a programmer's mindset that i think certainly I can relate to more easily than uh someone who's got a background in marketing writing out their technical experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, we will definitely get you back. And in the meantime, we'll put a link to your uh, sub stack in the show notes so people can find you. Michael Dragalis, thank you very much for joining us and best of luck. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Michael. And best of luck. I really hope you land safely. And I mean that I'm looking at you like I'm looking at you like a man who wants to do a parachute jump, but wants you to jump first. If you land safely, I might jump along, too. If you are feeling similar, then you might want to follow along with his journey. There's a link to his Substack in the show notes. Uh, You can read along or you can subscribe to his mailing list and you'll get regular updates. There's also a link in the show notes to a couple of the books we discussed. The Austin Cleon books I mentioned, they're a light, but they're a really inspiring read for, well, business, art, any creative project, I thoroughly recommend. And before you go and do all that, if you found this episode useful, please take a moment to like it, share it, rate it, subscribe to it. Click that notification. You know how all this goes. We're going to be back next week, and I hope you join us. So until then, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Michael Dragalis.